Hello, friends, and thanks for listening to the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This week, Pastor Jen Zerby continues our series called Radical. In this sermon, Jen speaks from Luke 14, where Jesus teaches what it means to be one of his followers. What does it really mean to forfeit one's life and to gain the world? Remember, you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on YouTube, or you can always find us at hillcrestdecalb.com. Grace and peace, friends. Well, in a world where the cost of absolutely everything is going up, we love to find a good deal, don't we? It's really easy when you're out shopping to fall for one of those, um, the buy one, get one free things. You're like, I didn't really need a purple trash can. But now that they're buy one, get one free, I probably need two. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's hard to pass up. I also learned fairly recently, actually, that it's just a Midwestern thing to respond to compliments with facts about the deals that we got. I thought that everybody did this, but I guess it's just us here in the Midwest. Like when somebody comes up to you and says, I love that jacket. I guess elsewhere in the world, people just say stupid things like, thank you, and then move on with their day. But not here in the Midwest, right? When somebody comes up to you and says, I love your jacket, you're like 12 bucks at TJ Maxx. <laughs> yeah. Cute shoes. Buy one, get one free at Payless. New lawnmower, 11% off at Menards. Right? We love a deal. We love a deal, especially nowadays when things are so hard to come by. Well, this week we are continuing our series that we're calling Radical, where we're taking a look at some of the things that Jesus said that turned the world up on, upside down or, or on its head. And last week we talked about the fact that, that one of the definitions of radical is, is favoring extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, or institutions. And we said that's exactly one of the things that Jesus came to do. And so perhaps the deal that Jesus offers us in our text for today, it probably shouldn't surprise us, given what we learned of his radical nature last week, but it still seems like a fairly strange offer. This is the offer. Forfeit your soul and gain the world, or give up your life and you will be saved. It's what's otherwise known in the church as the cost of discipleship. All throughout the New Testament, we hear this word disciple. But what does it mean? What is it? And how does it relate to us? Well, if you were to look up the word um, disciple, even in our current dictionary today, it will refer you back to the Bible. It will tell you that disciple means somebody who follows Christ. But more broadly, a disciple is somebody who follows something. Somebody who follows something so much so that it dictates decisions that you make in your life. But we can be disciples of all kinds of things, can't we? We can be disciples of money. We could be disciples of Peloton. We could be disciples of our own families, of success. You name it. But for those who are assessing the risk and reward of being a disciple of Jesus, this may seem like an awfully strange deal. And for people who really like free stuff, this offer of discipleship certainly seems like a costly one. And it is. So today I want us to figure out, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Of all the things or people that we could be disciples of, is following this radical Jesus really worth the cost? 
So all of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have some variation of this text. And in your bulletins, it says that we're going to look at Mark's version, because that was my initial intent. But if you know me well, you know that I accidentally always end up coming back to Luke, because I love Luke. Um, and I love Luke's thoroughness, and so we're going to look at Luke's version instead. And I have to warn you that at first glance, this is actually a really tough passage to swallow. And so if you have your Bibles, you can pull one from the pew in front of you, or it'll be up here on the screen. We're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now, I know that the Bibles that we have here in the church are not what we call red-letter Bibles. And so you probably can't see if that's where you're looking, but if you were to open your Bible and you had a red-letter Bible, and you looked at the text that surrounded our... This is real small. I don't expect you to see this, but um, if you saw the text that surrounds our chapter for today, it's just pages and pages and pages of red text, right? And if you have a red-letter Bible, for those of you who don't know what that means, every time the text is in red, it means that Jesus is speaking, which means that the passage that we're looking at this morning is set in the context, just kind of in the middle of Jesus doing a whole lot of teaching. And so a couple of chapters before this one, we see Jesus teaching about compassion and mercy as he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He talked about humility in the story of Mary and Martha. He taught about prayer. He taught about evil. He taught about how grace is better or bigger than the law. Jesus offered encouragement and he offered warnings. He taught them the difference between watchfulness and worry. He told them of the importance of repentance. And they watched him perform miracles. And then just before today's passage, we see Jesus tell a story about a, this, this great banquet in which all these really rich people were invited to. But instead of all of the rich people who were invited, they, they uh, instead invited the people who were willing to make the time and the space in their lives for Jesus. And that ended up being a whole group of people that nobody ever would have invited to a great banquet like that. And so all of these pieces precede Jesus' teaching on the cost of discipleship, and I do not believe that is by accident. It's as if Jesus taught on, on all of these major themes of being a follower of Christ, and now Jesus is asking them, the disciples or the people standing before him, to assess whether or not this is really what they want. He wants them to understand in no uncertain terms what is required of them as disciples. And to be honest, we don't actually really usually like looking at this part. Right? We love living in the conversations around grace and mercy and forgiveness, which are all true and all part of the story. We like to talk about Jesus being around the outcasts and the sinners because we can relate to that. We like to stay in that kind of territory. This territory where Jesus speaks so clearly about the cost of discipleship, well, we don't tend to like that part so much. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." 
So this passage is kind of broken up into a couple of sections here, and the first part is the one that I think tends to stick with us the most, the part where Jesus tells us that if you don't hate your own family or your own life, that you can't follow Jesus. And we read that, and we think, gosh, those are, those are pretty harsh words. In fact, they're such harsh, harsh words that it seems really difficult to think that Jesus said those things, but he did. It's right here in red. And so that means we have to figure out what Jesus meant. If one of the Ten Commandments is to honor one's father and mother, then why is Jesus here telling us now that we have to hate them? And so we're just going to get straight to the point on this. He's not. Jesus is not telling us that we actually have to hate our parents or our families or ourselves or our lives. The word that's translated hate here is what's called a comparative word, meaning that what Jesus is trying to get at is that he's trying to get us to assess what we love the most in this world. He's trying to convey that if your desire is to truly be his disciple, then you must make Jesus a priority over everything and everyone else in your life. It's not that you have to hate your family. It's that you are called to love Jesus more than your family. It's not that you have to hate your own life. It's that you are called to give up your life for the sake of Christ. Jesus is saying not only that he should be first in our lives, but also that discipleship requires that we be willing to give up everything else if need be. And I have to say that this is much, much easier for us to say yes to in the culture in which we live today than other places throughout the world. When we pray for Christians who are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus, we are praying for people who have given up all else, including their family and their own lives, for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's unfathomable to me. And even though I know there are media outlets and particular strains of Christianity trying to tell us that we are persecuted here right now, it's not true. Right this very second, right this very second, there are people who are hosting church in secret places where if they were to be found out, they would be imprisoned, if not murdered, on the spot. They are literally risking their lives to gather in Jesus' name. They have given up their families to gather in Jesus' name. That is is persecution. And it's hard for us to truly imagine that, given the freedoms of the Western world. But to be fair, the idea of putting Jesus first, even though we have the freedom to do so, is still pretty challenging for us here because it still flies in the face of the culture around us. Our society encourages us to live really exactly the opposite kind of life than the one that Jesus calls us to live. Created for community, putting Jesus above our family, our friends, our jobs, our success, no way. We were raised in a culture to be our own person, to value individualism. But here's the reality of it. As much as we like to think that we are our own self-made person, and I've said this before, we are somebody or something's disciple. Even the characteristic of individuality, we did not come by that from birth. We learned it somehow. And so if we're going to be something or somebody's disciple, why not Jesus? Jesus is telling us that there really is no good reason for us to live differently than the way that he has called us to live because he only has our best interest in mind. In Luke 6, it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
And when I read that, it gives me this image of standing before Jesus like a little kid, trying to explain to him why I did what I wanted instead of what was best for me. And those of you who are parents particularly understand this context. You make rules for your kids not to be some kind, kind of like giant buzzkill, right? You make rules because you know what's best for them. Jesus does this. <laughs> that was a new parent, I think, that just yelled that. <laughs> Jesus does the exact same thing with us. We may have boundaries around us, but when we do, it's because Jesus wants us to live the very best version of our lives. Jesus has made a way for us to live with fulfillment and with joy, and it is only as his disciples. And let's be clear here. You can be a Christian and not be a disciple, You can be somebody who has professed faith in Christ and still be a disciple of other things in this world. Because being a disciple of Christ is not just a one-time decision. Being saved is, but being a disciple isn't. We can follow anything we want on a daily basis. At the very end of the book of Matthew, there's something called the Great Commission. After Jesus died and was, was resurrected, but before he went to heaven, he left the church with these words. It comes from Matthew Chapter 28, starting at verse 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so if you have been... If we have been commissioned to make disciples of all nations, then we first have to be committed as disciples ourselves. We cannot make disciples if we are not living as disciples. And in order to be a disciple, it requires more than accepting Jesus into our lives. It requires us to be with Jesus. To be clear, it does not require perfection. And it is not based on age. And it is not based on how long you have been in the church. And it is not based on what you have done in your life. It's a conscious decision to be with Jesus, to align our lives with his. There's an incredible author by the name of Dallas Willard, and he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in that, he says a disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. Remember when that whole WWJD thing was huge? Everybody had bracelets and t-shirts and all the things. What does that stand for? What would Jesus do? I think maybe one of the things that got lost in that movement is that we, we tried so hard to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes instead of inviting Jesus into ours. Willard said that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were here. I am not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. I am learning from Jesus to lead my life, my whole life, my real life. His life on earth was a transcendently wonderful one, but it has now been led. Neither I nor anyone else, even himself, will ever lead it again. And he is, in any case, interested in my life. That very existence is me. 
Which means that when Jesus is calling us to count the cost of discipleship, he's not calling us to throw our lives away, but to see and to value and to engage our lives with the purpose and the love that Jesus does. To be a disciple is to realize that one's faith in Christ is not left up to the church. It is to know that discipleship happens in the church, and it happens at home, and it happens at work, and it happens in your neighborhood. We have such tendencies of compartmentalizing our lives. We live our church life at church, and our work life at work, and our home life at home, and never shall they meet, right? But if you don't think about your job or your family as a place where discipleship happens, that means you're excluding most of your waking hours from your life with Christ. It's essentially to say to God, God, you can have, you can have a couple hours of mine on Sunday mornings or a few minutes of prayer at the beginning or the end of my day, but everything else in between, I've got that. And we do that a lot, don't we? And to do that means that, you leave, that we leave all of our working hours under somebody else's direction. If you choose not to be a disciple of Christ at work or at school, then you are something or somebody's disciple while you're there. And so who or what is it? Is it your boss or a teacher or success or wealth or fitting in? What are you a disciple of during those hours that you have checked Jesus at the door? Willard kind of famously said it this way. He said, the specific work to be done, whether it is making axe handles or selling tacos, selling automobiles or teaching kindergarten, investment banking or political office, evangelizing or running a Christian education program, performing in the arts or teaching English as a second language, it is of, of central interest to God. He wants it all well done. It is work that should be done, and it should be done as Jesus himself would do it. And ultimately, that is the point of the passage of Luke chapter 14. Jesus is trying to help his followers both then and now understand that while anyone can profess faith in Christ, not everyone chooses to become a disciple. Because disciples are those who try to integrate all that we are and all that we do into God's kingdom here and now. Jesus is trying to tell them that as long as they or anyone else think that anyone or anything else is of more value than our relationship with Jesus, then he or she is not ready to learn as one of Jesus' disciples. Here's another way of looking at that. As you all know, I am horrible at math. Like, horrible at math. I was actually really good in math until I was in eighth grade and they decided to put me in high school algebra. And then it all, it all went downhill from there, like real fast. My last math class that I ever had was when I was 16 years old. I made it all the way through college and all the way through graduate school without taking a single math class, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> High school geometry was the last thing I could do. I could handle that because it was a very visual form of math, and so that made sense to me. But algebra, oh, that was not a good situation. And so I think what, what Jesus is saying in this passage is essentially like what my high school math teacher was telling me when she said, I don't really think you should go any further in math. <laughs> she wasn't telling me that because I was a bad person. And she wasn't telling me that because I was a bad student. 
She was telling me that because she knew that I did not have a basic command of the algebraic fundamentals that I would need in order to go to the next class. In the same way, in this text, Jesus is saying to us that those of us who have not yet gotten the basic focal point of our life straight will not be able to do the things needed to make it possible for us to learn from Jesus as his disciple. Or in other words, if I am not willing to try to put Jesus first, this again isn't about perfection, but if I am not willing to at least try to put Jesus first, or if I am not willing to be a disciple of Jesus in my work environment or within my family or around my neighbors, if I'm not willing to allow Jesus to guide my relationship, how I work, how I care for my family, then I am not in a place where I can learn the rest of what Jesus is trying to teach me. That is what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their family, they cannot be my disciple. It's why Jesus uses these parables. Remember I talked about that last week, that Jesus spoke in stories or parables. It's why he spoke like this, to help us understand that, which might feel a little confusing. Go back to Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 28. Jesus is still talking and he's telling these stories. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. He's talking here about what it means to count the cost. A builder is not going to begin a construction project before he or she has calculated roughly how much it's going to cost to finish it. Because nobody would start a project that they can't afford to finish, it's a waste of money. Or theoretically, no king or leader would go into a war without first calculating his opponent's army in comparison to his own, because he could lose everything he has that way. It would be foolish. And so Jesus is trying to offer us some clarity here. He's trying to help us see that to be a disciple of his is to take one's faith seriously. It's not a relationship to be entered into lightly, and it's not a relationship that only requires us to say yes one time, but every moment of every day. The counting of costs as it pertains to discipleship it's not meant to be some dramatic, miserable task of counting every dreadful possibility of what one might have to give up in order to follow Christ. He's trying to say that unless and until we can see clearly that what we gain in being a follower of Jesus is so much better than what we stand to lose, we will never be able to succeed as his disciple. Until we realize that what we receive in this life of discipleship is far superior to what we would lose, we will not be able to do what is asked of us to learn all that Christ wants us to learn, to live fully the life that we were created to live. It's not about being perfect. It's not a long list of prerequisites. You don't have to have come to church a certain amount of times. 
You don't have to have a certain amount of the Bible memorized. Discipleship is a decision that we make every day from where we are to say that we will choose Jesus first. And you can say yes to that from wherever you are on your own journey today. It is to say that I fully realize, I fully realize that what I stand to lose pales in comparison to all that I gain as Christ's disciple. It is to hold loosely to all that we have been given in the world. It is not a means of devaluing human life, our family, or our own, but that we hold these things loosely, knowing that our commitment to Christ is even more valuable than any one person or any one thing on this earth. I told you a long time ago, I think, when I was in college, I spent an absurd amount of time studying a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was, a, he was an extraordinary Christian man, and his story just fascinated me. He was this German pastor and theologian, and he just loved Christ, and his love for Christ was evident in so many ways. But he also sacrificed himself for the sake of the church. He was a part of a group of anti-Nazi rebels who took part in an assassination attempt on Hitler. And the attempt failed, and Bonhoeffer was hung because of it. Bonhoeffer knew that discipleship was costly in a manner that I will never understand. Some believed that Bonhoeffer was a martyr. Others, even in the church, believed that he was a murderer. Eight years before his death, he wrote this incredible book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he said the following. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for the door at which a man or woman must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. In a world where costs are constantly being driven up and where we are always looking for a good deal as one does with any major decision, we have to weigh the cost, benefit, or risk, reward of making a decision to follow this radical Jesus. Because what he asks of us is a costly thing. It's as costly a thing as we have to offer our very own lives. He does ask us to put him first which means that ourselves and our stuff and our families and our people have to come second and third and fourth. But when it comes to this radical Jesus, we are bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So the question this morning is, is it worth it? Is it worth it for you? Unfortunately, I can't answer that question for you. Because each of us has to make that decision for ourselves. But here's what I do know. I have dedicated my life to church ministry. And I didn't do that because of the awesome reputation that comes along with being affiliated with the church. 
And I didn't do that because it's the highest paying gig out there. I do this for a living because I once was lost. I do this because it's my natural tendency to be a disciple of myself. Because I always think that I know what's best for me. That doesn't work so well. I do this because I know what it feels like to not have hope in this world. And because I know what it feels like to feel abandoned and to be filled with shame and to feel unloved and to feel unlovable. And I know what it feels to feel like you don't matter. And to be perfectly honest with you, when I met Jesus, it was not a magic bullet. I was not healed in a moment. I was saved in a moment. But I was not healed. Those thoughts and feelings of being unlovable and being filled with shame, they did not go away in an instant. In fact, every once in a while, they can still creep in if I let them. But I know they are lies. And I know they are lies because I have a seat at the table that we are about to join in together. And here in the presence of Jesus, I found everything that this messed up life stole from me, and then some. In Jesus, I found healing. And in Jesus, I found belonging. And in Jesus, I found acceptance. And in Jesus, I found peace. And in Jesus, I found freedom. In Jesus, I found unconditional love and unimaginable grace and unwavering hope. The cost of my life and the things of this world are laughable in the face of all that I received in this exchange. Because what I gave up was death. And what I got was life. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that there is a seat at the table for you. There is a seat at the table with your name on it. And I pray for you for that day when each of you would realize that what you have to gain in Christ far surpasses the cost of what he asks you to give up. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't really like talking about the cost of things. It's hard for us to look at texts that tells us to hate our family and to hate our lives. It feels so harsh and it feels so strong, Lord. But I pray that you would remind us, God, that it's a word of comparison, that you mean for us to understand that you are worthy of everything that we have to give up, that anything we give up, you give us back in spades and then some. God, help us to love you most. Help us to know, Lord, that the cost of discipleship doesn't compare to the cost that you paid for us to have it. God, and even though this journey of faith, this journey with Jesus, it's not, a, it's not always the silver bullet that we wish it was. We know that life is still hard. God, would you remind us that in you we have everything that we need. That there isn't one hurt in this whole world that you can't heal. And so God, would you help us to offer our lives to you once again in this moment and in the next and tomorrow and every day that is to come that we would give up death and in you find our life.